Good afternoon. Welcome to the weekly edition of The Wrap. I'm Laura Leslie, WRAL Capital Bureau Chief. And I'm Travis Fain, WRAL State House Reporter. And it is election eve, right? Uh, tomorrow is the last day of early voting. Um, Tuesday is, of course, election day. What we're seeing on some of the turnout figures on early voting is that it is running ahead of 2018, but you would expect that, of course, because there's actually a, a statewide Senate race this year and there wasn't in 2018. So looks like it's running pretty much about where you would expect it to. Yeah, and it may also be more people early voting this time out because they maybe they had never tried it before, but the pandemic uh, in 2020, so they thought, well, let me try this early voting thing. And uh, golly, it was not so bad. So, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I haven't voted yet. I need to... Uh, need to get out there. I need to research some of these local races. I had to do that last weekend. I took my mom to um, vote for Mother's Day. We went early voting um, and we went to a spot in Cary that was close to where we went for lunch. And I was expecting to have a line, you know, 1.30 or two o'clock on Sunday for voting. We just walked in. We were the line. So yeah, I was a little surprised right. by that. But oh, well, anyway, I can't complain. <laughs> so races we're watching. There's a lot of races that we're watching at this point. Um, we are, um, we've got a whole list of them. I put up a big list of some of the interesting legislative primaries, um, in our, in our viewing area. So it doesn't really go much past just, you know, the triangle area and the sand hills, but even with those, there were 13 races that we're kind of watching and that, you know, there's lots of other races of interest in um, the Mecklenburg area and out West and the triad as well. So. Yeah, and I mean, I think for me, it starts with Senate District 19, uh, the Democratic primary there. Primary there. Uh, we'll see if the governor's endorsement of former city councilwoman Val Applewhite wins the day out over Senator Kirk Devier. Uh, we've never heard of a governor endorsing against a member of his own party, an incumbent in his own party. Uh, and then Ballard Heiss out west. That's the uh, one I'm. <clears throat> that's the one I'm watching. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to expect. You know, all the congressional races and the Senate races kind of sucked up enough oxygen, uh, particularly one out there in the West, a congressional race. Um, but I mean, you know, Deanna Ballard, rising star, risen star in the Republican uh, Party in North she Carolina. Has, and she has strong connections in Watauga. And that district now includes Mitchell, which is, of course, Ralph Heise's area. Plus her area, Watago, which has, I think, more people in it. Um, so I, I do not know which way this is going to go. And so far, I haven't talked to anybody who says that they do. Yeah, that's the most interesting of the, the handful of double bunks. And then, you know, some races here and there that are probably going to get decided in the primary. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it and try to sort it out. Uh, there's, there's three that I'm really watching in um, the Orange County, the three races in Orange County, two houses and, and one Senate. All three of those vacated because Verla Inska retired, Greg Myers running for state Senate, and Valerie Fushi is, of course, running for Congress. So you had sort of this mad dash of a lot of the Democrats in those areas to see who is, because, I mean, basically, it's it's a safe seat. So you win the primary, you pretty much get the seat. Um, so there's a really tight race for um, Verla Inska's old seat, and that is um, Alan Buancey, I'm sorry, and Jonah Gerson. Um, they are just, it looks like they're neck and neck. I have not seen polls, but in terms of their fundraising, in terms of their endorsements, um, it, that's going to be a really tough race to call. Yeah, and I'll also throw in there in Wake County, Senate District 13, uh, that's going to be decided in the Democratic primary. And it's Raleigh City Councilman Patrick Bufkin against uh, Lisa Grafstein, uh, Stein. I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm going the wrong way on that. My apologies, but she's a civil rights attorney, uh, fairly well known, has the Sierra Club endorsement. 
a bunch of uh, progressive endorsements, whereas Bufkin, I mean, he's got the North Carolina Chamber advertising, doing mailers for him. That's typically a, an entity that's going to uh, back Republicans, uh, home builders, retail merchants, the realtors. So kind of developers backing Bufkin here in Wake County. It'll be interesting to see. That's a district that has seen a lot of growth uh, in the last, well, however long and probably will continue to. So kind of a development versus uh, progressivism. I'm sure Bufkin would label them. They're both, you know, they're both Democrats, uh, but it is interesting to see the money flow there. So I went through, because I saw a lot of comebacks or potential comebacks this year from former lawmakers. I went through and counted them up statewide. So in the House, we're looking at possible comeback bids from uh, Marilyn Avila, Bill Brawley, Christy Clark, Trisha Cotham, Elmer Floyd, um, and Tony Moore out in Pitt County, and Stephen Ross in Alamance. And then in the Senate, you've got comeback bids from, um, looks like, um, Gallimore, Meredith, Newton, and Randleman. That's right. And Meredith will face off, assuming he wins his primary, which you would expect him to. He's run against it's a first-time guy named Dennis Britt. Yeah. Uh, down, he, he, that's District 19. So he will face either Devier or Applewhite. Uh, whoever wins uh, in the primary Democratic primary we mentioned earlier. Yeah, and then um, uh, Buck Newton will face whoever wins in the um, the Wilson primary, and that is the one between Senator Toby Fitch and uh, Representative um, Raymond Smith. So that Raymond Smith got redistricted into John Bell's district, so he decided to run for the Senate district instead. And so it's not technically a double bunking, but I mean essentially it's a it's a first cousin of a double bunking. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I love that. That's a nice way to put it. Um, also, in I guess election adjacent news, uh, Mike Lindell. You might know him as the My Pillow guy. Uh, he, he is just continually lying about what happened to the 2020 elections. Uh, Trump advisor, Trump supporter, uh, trying to overturn the 2020 elections, and he will be speaking in Surrey County Monday night before the county commissioners, before the Surrey County commissioners. Uh, Monday evening, just so the day before the primary. Surrey County has been, they kind of got a mess out there because, I mean, it's a heavily Republican county. We've talked about it before. You know, the, the lowest vote getter, Republican vote getter statewide in Surrey County in 2020 got 69% of the vote. Most people were well up over 70%. So, I mean, it's, it is a Republican um, safe area. And but but these the, the, the local GOP chairs push in a lot of election fraud claims. The local elections director got kind of so disconcerted by it that she started calling the police and saying, hey, could you have someone in the parking lot when we walk out at night? That's happened, you know, more than a handful of times in the last month and a half. Uh, and now, you know, the MyPillow guy is showing up uh, along with some other people. And, and wasn't it him? Wasn't it him that uh, the, that the uh, GOP county chair said that he had heard from that there was data coming out of Surrey County? Yes, that's so the, the local GOP chair who has uh, been making these waves, he is, let's call him a Mike Lindell disciple, or, you know, he, he has taken some of these things that Lindell has said about, uh, about internet traffic indicating that data was coming out of Surrey County. I mean, again, this is a place... Republicans just rolled a victory. Uh, all five county commissioners in Surrey County are Republican. Uh, so, you know, I, I'll have a story up on that uh, by the time people are able to hear this, I think. All right. And you also have a story coming up on Sunday, right? 
Yeah, that's right. So remember, they put $30 million into the state budget last year when it passed in November to do air conditioning uh, at all or part of 39 different facility, prison facilities in the state, something like 15,000 beds in our system. It's like 40% of the capacity don't have air conditioning. That's crazy to me. In 2022, that's just nuts. And, you know, obviously it gets very, very hot. And I mean, you think about NCCIW in Raleigh, that's the largest women's prison in the state. We get complaints every year we hear from people. And, you know, it's not just, it's not just the, 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 the people serving time, but correctional guards, officers yeah. too, you know, they wear those stab proof vests, you know, and, and, and it's, it's really hot. We're running like a 33% functional vacancy rate. So we're having a really hard time keeping people employed. Well, anyway, so they were like, well, we're going to fix this big problem. $30 million. The work has not begun. Uh, design work has begun at five prisons out of the 39. The best case scenario, it sounds like, is that they're going to have uh, the first three prisons, including NCCIW, the women's prison in Raleigh, uh, done in the winter. So none of that work will be done by the summer. And one of the reasons is, well, there are a number of reasons, but one of them is because everybody's getting HVAC work done these days. And we got supply chain issues. We got construction crew issues. Uh, the schools have five and a half billion dollars that they got in COVID money, uh, public schools in North Carolina. One of the things they could do with that money was upgrade ventilation. You're seeing a lot of school systems do that uh, with their COVID money. So that, Probably that's over the summer too. That yeah, exactly. You, you when the students are gone. So I mean, look at it this way: you're a contractor, and hey, I can go do this project at, at a school, or I can do it in a prison. Which do I want? Not to mention retrofitting some of those prisons for air conditioning must be pretty challenging. There are buildings at NCCIW that date back to the 1930s. That's what I mean. It's like I don't. Know. Anyway, obviously above my pay grade. Yeah, so I just, it's something we wanted to stay on, and it's a good reminder that just because something gets funded, I mean, sure, it'll get done, but it doesn't mean it gets well, done. It may or may not get done. That's a good point. Um, so also, um, want to talk about, oh, wind. So um, big news this week, um, the Biden administration, BOEM, Bureau of Off, Off Ocean Energy Management, sorry, um, announced that uh, two more leases have been auctioned off um, off the coast of North Carolina. Now, unlike the one that's already underway, development is underway, that's up by, they call it the Kitty Hawk Project, that's up by the north part of the, north part of the coast. These two would be um, south of Bald Head Island. So it's definitely in an area where I think more people in this area are more likely to go to the beach. Now, that said, you should not be able to see these things unless you're on a skyscraper on Bald Head Island, and there aren't any skyscrapers on Bald Head Island yet. Uh, but at any rate, um, I know that the local commissioners had wanted it to put even further out um, BOEM just selected the area based on um, the best wind, uh, the, the depth, the fishing locations, endangered species, migration paths. You know, they did factor a lot of stuff into this. So um, Duke and Total Renewables each leased about 55,000 square acres to do this. Um, and they each paid, let's see, 160 and 155 million, respectively, <clears throat> I think it was, uh, to do this. So it's not going to happen overnight, but this is going to be enough to power about half a million homes if it's fully developed. Um, what was really interesting to me that I did not understand before this story is that starting on July 1st, they can't lease anymore. This goes back to 2020. So this was in um, the fall in Trump's final year in office. He signed uh, basically 
an executive order banning energy exploration offshore all along the southeastern coast. And that did not count just for oil and gas. It also included wind. So this got a 10-year moratorium that's supposed to be starting uh, July 1st unless Congress takes some kind of action to overturn it. Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, not to use a pun here, but there are always headwinds for a project like this. Sure that's all certainly all, is, all week, folks. I couldn't think of a, of a synonym. Um, but I mean, cost is going to be a big deal. I mean, these, these projects, before they hook into the grid, they have to be analyzed by government regulators uh, as far as what they will do to the cost of electricity. And if the cost is too high, you know, they're not, they're not going to get approved. I'm, I'm looking right now to refresh my memory, Dominion, which is the big power company in Virginia, has an offshore wind project. And they just recently said, oh, it's not going to cost $8 billion, It's going to cost $9.8 billion. And there are some people who are arguing that the real price is probably going to be upwards of $12 billion. Uh, And I, I, I mean, we don't have to go too far in analysis here uh, to talk about what happens when an already expensive project becomes more and more expensive. So that's something to watch. Right. I, 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 again, just because, you know, there's a plan, just because the money's getting spent doesn't mean it comes to fruition, but that's true. a big deal out on the coast, uh, 30 miles or so off the and, coast. And a big deal. Well, I, basically between 50 and 20 nautical miles. So yeah, a little yeah. less, but yeah. Um, <clears throat> one thing that it may make, excuse me, <clears throat> damn, um, and allergies still. Um, one thing that it may make a big difference in, or at least a substantial difference in, is the the carbon plant. So if you've been keeping up with um, the House energy package that they passed last year, one of the requirements was that the NCUC find a way to reduce the state's carbon emissions from 2005 levels 70% by 2030. So NCUC has to submit a plan to legislators by next calendar year. So they're getting started on all this right now. Um, Duke has been asked to submit its carbon plan for reducing its footprint by that much. Uh, on Monday. So what we're going to hear about in that plan, it's hard to say if I haven't seen it yet. But one thing I'm sure we'll see is the idea of wind since they have this lease now. Um, and another one is the argument that we've been hearing for a long time over net metering for solar power, whether or not that's actually more expensive for, um, for all the consumers or whether or not it's actually maybe less when you factor in uh, the economic impacts of climate change. So that's going to be the, I think the push and pull we're going to see this week at, um, you know, in the NCUC and behind the scenes um, with the advocates on both sides. Yeah, that's going to be something that might not get a, as much attention as it deserves because the primary is the next day. But that carbon plan, you know, planning for our energy future, that is difficult to overstate the importance of. Well, and it's really difficult because, you know, it, it, the way that the legislature put it, they have to look for the least cost alternative. And if they can, I mean, basically, I think if Duke can sort of make the case that all these other um, forms of renewable energy are going to be too expensive, I think they get they can find a way to push that deadline back and get an extension. And I think they that's can. what that's what advocates are concerned is going to happen. So you know, they're they're planning to try to fight this from square one, and it is square one. We got a long way to go on this, but it is starting. That's right. Governor uh, came out with his budget uh, proposal this week. Uh, much like Republicans, I imagine, I have not read it. Have you read it? I read it. It's big. <laughs> Tell us what's in it then. Tell me what's in it. It's large. It's large in, it's about this thick. And uh, it's what, $29.2 billion. So it'll be about- That sounds right. Yeah. So the, um, 
The, okay, so the, the certified budget for next year was supposed to be about 27 billion. So this would be about 8.5% more. Um, and the money, so, you know, we got $6 billion sitting on the bottom line. So anybody walking into budget writing right now is in a really good place, right? Yeah, we should explain that if people don't know, the, the, the new revenue report or revenue estimate rather came out, what, Monday? Monday. So mm -hmm. almost a week ago. And it said, hey, we're doing $6.2 billion over the two years of this budget better than we thought we were. So basically we got six, we once again have an extra $6 billion uh, which is like the second time in two years that roughly has happened. Well, there's a couple of things behind that. Number one, you got the state's growth, right? All these people are moving here to take jobs and those new jobs generate revenue, right? Another thing that I hadn't thought about until I learned about it the other day is um, every time your wages go up, they get more, right? Because they take a percentage. Percentage doesn't change, but the amount does. And every time prices go up with inflation, the government gets more. Again, percentage of sales tax is the same, but if the item is $5 instead of four, they're making a little extra there too. So that and on their investment portfolios apparently did really well, at least until, until this month, like everybody else. But, uh, but yeah, so there were a lot of different factors that went into that surplus, but it's, it's huge. You know, Republican leaders have been pretty clear from the outset that they don't plan to spend it all. And no, uh, the governor did not try to spend it all either. Um, he did put a chunk of it into um, reserves, although I'm not sure that qualifies as savings if you have intentions to spend them. Um, and also sort of the rainy day fund, but he would do some program expansion with about $2.3 billion of the money. And that would include what I thought was some really interesting stuff. It would fund Leandro. It would, um, I mean, I obviously can't go through all of it right now. Um, it would include a, a, a down payment assistance program, which I thought was fascinating. So for people who are making the median age wage, sorry, or below in a given area, they could apply to get a grant of up to $8,000 to help toward a down payment or up to $15,000 if they're a teacher, um, a law enforcement officer, or a first responder. And he said the idea is to try to help people that serve the communities stay in the communities where they live. And right now with the markets, it's just, it's just getting out of hand. So that's kind of fascinating. Um, and of course, Medicaid expansion, although the way they presented it will be a plus to the budget, not a minus. Well, that's true for a couple of years. I guess we'll have to see after that. Yeah, and I, I the Medicaid expansion, I don't know if that's gonna be something. I, it, the legislature is soft to that, of course, particularly the Senate more so than the House. But, you know, they're continuing, the legislature is to have these hearings on Medicaid expansion and healthcare in general. Would they move forward with expansion in this budget year as opposed to waiting until that process plays out? I rather doubt it. Uh, the indications are that lawmakers want to be done with this legislative session by the end of June, which would indicate not doing a heavy lift like that. I'm not saying I've heard this before, but I mean. Yeah, I, they mean it this time, Laura. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and one of the reasons that I'm inclined to be to believe it is, I think we mentioned this last week, we've heard some, uh, some pretty solid uh, information that it's going to be a conference committee report, the budget. So, you know, something that gets worked out ahead of time and comes to the floor and there are no amendments on the floor. I, I've asked leadership about that and they say, well, that isn't decided, but it's certainly on the table. It sounds um, like it. Yeah, I mean, that's what it sounds like is gonna happen to me because as soon as they say it's on the table, they also say, we wanna be done by the end of June. So, I mean, those two ideas go hand in hand um, when, when you're wanting to move quickly. So we'll see. Monday. I don't know if you remember, but back in um, 2010, I think it was, um, or 2011, when the Republicans first came in, 
<clears throat> Representative Tillis and um, Senate Leader Berger, you know, Speaker and, and Senate Leader actually pre-conferenced the entire budget. So they were actually out in the middle of June, which we all thought was, uh, was impossible, you know, after years of Democrats kind of dragging their feet. Um, but it did happen very quickly. Of course, it happened without a lot of input. So I guess, you know, there's a reason government isn't always efficient. Um, so I guess you pick, pick what you want, efficient or transparent. Yeah. One other thing I think on, on my list to mention, and that's uh, broadband money. The governor had an announcement today. Uh, how much was it? Do you remember? It was going to be $100 million for North Carolina. But the total, okay, so in Biden's infrastructure bill, there was $65 billion, billion, B, billion um, for uh, broadband uh, expansion across the U.S. So $45 billion of it is going to be used in this particular program that he's talking about. They're pairing up with, I think, 20-some telecom companies to try to um, increase broadband access. And not just in rural areas. I mean, there's a lot of people who can't afford broadband in urban areas. So I'll, I'll be interested to see how much attention that gets as opposed to the last mile building that we always hear so much about. Yeah, and I mean, worth, worth remembering in the American Rescue Plan, uh, the, one of the federal COVID bills, we took, I think, a billion dollars of that and put it toward broadband expansion in North Carolina. That's in the state budget that passed last November. I doubt any or very little of that money has been spent. Uh, there are other pots of money that have existed prior to that federal money. The Great uh, Grant Program. The yep. Great Grant Program, which I think was a $30 million a year program, state-funded. Right, and that was private, public-private partnership. But yeah, that was last mile. Right. And so there are all, there are all these pots of money. And I mean, it's to the point where I'm not sure money is the stumbling block at this point. Uh, there are all these little turf wars that go up on uh, b between cable companies and internet providers uh, that I think will probably make sense to people just hearing the idea of a turf war between those kind of companies. But even with the great grants, when I looked into this a, a year and a half ago or so, there had been 126 applications for a great grant. That's last mile money to help get, get internet into places that don't have it. Of 126 applications, 51 of them, another company had come in and said, hey, we don't think you should let them do this. We think that we have some sort of uh, right to this territory. Um, so <clears throat> it ain't just money. That, 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 that's the yeah. bottom line. That's the, 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 when you see that a bunch of money has been put towards something, that does not mean the problem has been solved. Sure. That's the theme of the week. Um, anyway, um, our, well, I think I'm just about out of topics. How about you? Yeah, I think that's good for now. I mean, we'll, you, I, I do not want to make any predictions for Tuesday because I don't like being wrong. Oh, come on. <laughs> It'll all come down to turnout, Laura. Oh, don't even. that. I will say, I think it's interesting that neither Bohines nor Kelly Daughtry is having a public um, election night celebration. So a little uncertainty there on both sides. I certainly don't know who's going to walk off with that one. I mean, for all I know, it could be the, a, a third person. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I certainly in the 13th, if we want to just limit this to the 13th, I mean, it looks like on the Democratic side, Wiley Nichols seems to have the momentum. I don't know what that means. I'm not out and about in the community to know who's going to win that. Uh, but we've certainly heard way more for him than we have Sam Searcy in that race. On the Republican side, I wouldn't be surprised if it was any of like five people uh, who who came through what I ultimately guess would be a runoff, but I don't know. Well, we'll see. Stay tuned. We'll see. I think it might be a runoff. Other people on our team don't think so. So, um, so we'll see about that one. Of course, we're watching Cawthorn. So we'll have full coverage 
uh, Tuesday night on WRAL.2, 5.2, I think I call it one, two, 5.2, which is our alternate channel. We're going to have coverage, um, election coverage from 9 until about 10 o'clock on election night. And then we'll be on the air on WRAL proper uh, and and Fox at 10 and 11 with the latest uh, in those returns for you. Teams are going to be out and about all over the state. I'll be um, with the Democrats in District 4, which is probably going to be the real race for that district anyway. Um, So we'll, you know, should be an interesting night. Yep. Looking forward to it. All right, everybody. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week.